Hello, everyone, and welcome to uh, Ask Me Anything. My name is Ken Rubin. It's been some time since I've uh, been able to host one of these events, so it's a pleasure to be back here. Uh, Dan Merrick, who is scheduled to be on today, is not feeling well, so I agreed to uh, step in in his place. So it's going to be uh, a little bit fun for me to get back in the action here with these live events and directly having the opportunity to answer some questions from all of you. So uh, as we wind out the rest of this year, uh, we're just looking forward to having a great last few weeks. Um, obviously, for those of you who are in the U.S., uh, having some holiday time for those of you outside the U.S. Uh, as well. Um, and looking forward to uh, all the questions that we have coming in today. So without further ado, we're just going to dive right in. It looks like, looks like we have a handful of questions already. Um, and as I'm speaking or answering questions, of course, if something else pops into your head that you want some more clarification on or some more detail around, uh, by all means, don't hesitate to ask. Uh, first question we have is from uh, Aruna. She says, hi, chef. Can you talk about controlling oil temperature when frying at home, particularly what to do if your oil temperature is increasing past your, des your desired frying temperature? This scares me. Um, so, uh, you know, I would say, first off, good to have a healthy fear of uh, of frying and, and the temperatures involved in frying. Frying is um, not an unsafe cooking method, but when you look at the potential risk while frying uh, for safety mishaps to happen, it's certainly a bit higher on the list than other types of cooking techniques. Um, you know, most particularly because you have that, that volume of hot oil um, that you just want to be really cautious with and really careful around. So just to kind of go back to the basics, whenever you're um, cooking anything using the frying method, you just want to make sure that you're, um, you know, very aware of all the factors that might uh, lead to any sort of a safety issue. Number one, you want to make sure that you are using the right vessel, uh, the right pot uh, or pan to fry in, that it's big enough that you essentially allow for the expansion of the oil um, as you add um, hot food in and it begins to bubble and begins to kind of shimmer and shake in that hot oil. So just knowing that is going to be really important. So don't, don't overcrowd or overfill your pan with the, with the oil. Um, also just really wanting to make sure that you um, are, you know, being mindful of temperature control. So the question around, you know, monitoring or maintaining temperature is going to be really, really key. Uh, if you're worried about your temperature being too hot, um, you know, best thing to do is obviously get your thermometer out, check the temperature of the oil. You want to really fry ideally for those results in that 360 to 380 degree Fahrenheit type range. That's going to be a, a range that gives you good results. It's not going to overcook too quickly. It's not going to brown too quickly. It's also going to make sure that you get a nice exterior uh, coating and crust on that fried food. And you're not taking up too much oil. In the case of your particular question, though, um, if you are concerned about the temperature getting too high, the number one thing is just turn off the heat, right? So just take it as an opportunity. If you're seeing splattering, smoking, or just visually identifying that you've got too much heat, just go ahead and turn it off. Um, let it cool down. Go ahead and put your probe thermometer in that hot oil and really get that reading. That information is going to be critical to see if you're, you know, above that 400 degree mark. And it, in that instance, really just give it a few moments to cool down. You want to let it go back down into that 360, 370, 380 Fahrenheit range. That's just going to be better for you. But if you're at all concerned, uh, when in doubt, just turn your heat off. That's the number one easiest way to make sure that you're temperature of your oil doesn't keep climbing and create that, you know, anxiety around the, the oil temperature there. Um, certainly, if you have any smoking, if you're at risk at all of having a fire from that oil, the number one thing is you just want to put a lid on top of that. Uh, that will essentially deprive any potential of, um, you know, having oxygen to ignite and that sort of a thing. So just a lid is also a safe thing in that instance if you're worried about a flare-up or anything of, of that order. Question from Anne. Uh, I'm trying to avoid sugar, dairy, and gluten. 
So I'd love to have something to just munch on or suck on like hard candies or anything that exists to avoid uh, those things. Um, you know, when it comes to like snacks or candies, a lot of them really leverage those simple sugars, those carbohydrates. Um, you know, that's just one of the kind of the, the easy hallmarks of those sorts of foods um, being sweet, you know, kind of easy to eat and so on. I would say if you're really just craving something, you want something to munch on. I love cutting up fruits and vegetables. Um, to me, the, um, the sweetness of carrots and red peppers and those sorts of things is fantastic. If you tolerate things like nuts and seeds, also, those also, um, while higher in fat and higher in calories, are very satisfying, probably cause you to want to munch a little bit less. And also just fresh fruit. I mean, fruit gets a bad rap because of its inherent sugar quality, but with whole fruit, you also get the amazingness of, you know, the water content and the insoluble and soluble fiber, which, um, you know, gives fruit its structure. It gives it the, the texture and the crunch and all those sorts of things, say in an apple or a pear, but also really does a good job of filling you up. So for people who kind of caution against fruit, you know, excess of fruit, I would just say, you know, for most of us, we get pretty satisfied after eating an apple or two apples, or if you cut up an apple and a pear, um, that's going to be pretty satisfying for most people, even though calorically not um, too much of a load, certainly much different than drinking fruit juice or drinking fruit that's been blended in a smoothie or that sort of a thing. But the act of, of chewing that food, um, in particular, those fiber-rich foods like fruits and vegetables, adds to that kind of quality of feeling satisfied from your food. Um, so, you know, find those things that you like that seem maybe just a little bit more of a treat for you. Maybe not all fruits and vegetables fit the bill, but, um, you know, having those things on hand, I think can be really, really good. One of the things I also like to do with fresh cut fruit is put it in the freezer. Some people like the snack of having some like frozen or partially frozen grapes or cantaloupe or melon um, berries certainly work really well in that context. Sometimes for people that added temperature dimension can make it seem a little bit more like a treat or a, a fun snack versus, you know, room, room temperature. So hopefully that helps you, Melissa. Um, good luck with that, you know, kind of, a uh, idea or, and rather good luck with that idea of having some other things, uh, that you can munch on. Next up is Melissa. Um, I'm craving high fiber, slightly sweet roots, um, vegetables and greens so I can roast and enjoy eating them so I can continue looking sw uh, slim in my swimsuit. Would you suggest recipes for um, salt, oil, sugar-free, gluten, and corn-free recipes? Um, yeah, I, I love having a, just a wide variety of uh, mostly roasted vegetables on hand. Um, great for snacking, great for topping on top of a cold salad or adding onto a grain bowl, um, or even just sort of as a one-off. Like I wanna have, you know, just something kind of quick, some bites of some roasted carrots or roasted sweet potatoes. Um, these are all things that you can roast in a hot oven, um, you know, 375 to 425 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, just on a piece of parchment paper. So no oil required. I would say if you're looking for texture while using a no oil uh, roasting method. Cutting them a little bit on the smaller side helps ensure that you get some of that browning, some of the external uh, texture creation with some crispiness potentially and some browning, but also so that you're not, um, you know, having to leave the vegetable in the oven for so long so that you're kind of drying it out too much. You're trying to create a balance between texture and cooking the vegetable without dehydrating it too much and drying it out. So that's gonna be, I think, a pretty important piece. Um, obviously nothing beats you know, fresh out of the oven, but these are also vegetables that if you wanted to cook ahead and have you know, just some containers of some roasted squash, some roasted sweet potato, some uh, parsnips, some carrots, um, those are all great things that I think have 
uh, sweet as well as satisfying components. Uh, greens you can also do, they're fantastic. I, I typically will take like kale leaves and um, you know, you can also roast those. Those sometimes I think do better at those lower temperatures because you're really just trying to dry it out. So you get kind of a crispy kale. Uh, you're really just doing like an oven drying versus a roasting technique on some of those things. So just something to kind of play with. You might have better results um, with leafy greens in that method versus the root vegetables. Uh, hopefully that helps you, Melissa. Um, next question here from Donna. Uh, question around coconut milk. Uh, this used to be a really popular question. Uh, so great to see it uh, pick up here. Uh, coconut milk is one of those ingredients that adds just an amazing amount of, um, of richness uh, because of the high fat content. Uh, in particular, you know, coconut milk has that kind of mouth filling type of richness that really coats your palate very much like other dairy uh, or, you know, animal dairy might have because it does have that high fat content and high saturated fat content. So typically when you see, you know, regular coconut milk, that's going to be a fairly high fat product. Um, brands vary, but, you know, you're looking at 10, 12, 15 grams of fat per serving. Um, most of that being in the form of saturated fat, um, which, you know, not necessarily recommended for all diets, but something that if you are trying to add some richness, certainly will do the trick. When it comes to light coconut milk products, um, the main difference between these is that these are basically, you know, manufactured or created just to have a lower calorie count and fat count on the label. But essentially all you're doing with those products is you're taking coconut milk and you're mixing it with additional water, sort of watering it down for lack of a better term. And then in many cases, um, these light quote unquote light products will also add um, some kind of a gelling agent. So uh, guar gum, or something similar that will be added back in just to help make up for that reduction of fat. So the high fat, full fat version doesn't require that because it has so much natural richness and thickness because of the fat content. If you buy the light version, you're essentially buying some water and typically some additional gum or binder in there to give it that appearance, that mouthfeel of having that similarly um, fatty kind of texture. Now the light version by no means is fat free. I would say most brands probably are about half the fat more or less, some are a little bit more, maybe 60% less fat, some are maybe 40% less fat, but by and large you're talking about probably a fat reduction of about half, which might bring you down to five, six, seven grams of fat per serving. Again, most of that in that saturated fat uh, type category. So you could use them interchangeably. If you didn't want to buy the light version, you certainly could just use, you know, roughly half as much of the full fat version and then supplement with some extra water or vegetable stock or whatever else sort of liquid you might want to use in that scenario. Uh, Ken Jay has a question about uh, making the Indian veggie burger. It sounds like they're not sticking together. So uh, he says, hi, chef. I made the Indian veggie burger for my list of recipes. The ingredients didn't stick together very well. Using medium Calrose brown rice I had on hand, would adding a small batch of short grain rice to the existing ingredients help or what to do here? So uh, I would say in cases where you're already using um, some rice, you know, just a few things that you might do to help with that binding. One is I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily go down the road of, you know, adding in, um, a short grain white rice into that mix that might help in terms of the overall texture or the ability to bind. Um, one trick that I've had really good success with, um, is just using a very small amount of, um, rice flour, in particular, 
sweet rice or what they call glutinous rice flour. There's no gluten in glutinous rice. It's just really more about the texture that you can get from using that. It has a tackiness and a stickiness and a certain uh, sense of body. This is what they make like mochi, um, you know, rice desserts with or rice, uh, little rice cakes with. It just has a natural uh, density and kind of a, a springiness that I would say is probably going to be your trick in terms of binding those together a little bit. So a little bit of that sweet rice flour, that mochi powder, um, just might be enough to like bind those to absorb that extra small amount of liquid that might be keeping that, you know, not so, uh, together texture, um, and doing it in a way that's not going to make it overly gummy or stretch out the density of the flavor that you're trying to maintain, uh, within that, that little, you know, veggie burger there. Um, I, I hesitate to go ahead and add more rice in because then you're just diluting some of those more nutrient dense or flavor dense ingredients that you would otherwise have in there. So just trying to minimize that moisture, create that little extra binder um, that might work. If you didn't want to use that, you could also use um, or experiment with a little bit of ground flax meal or some chia meal. Um, that sort of a thing would work well. Even just a small amount of something like arrowroot powder might also work. Again, just the idea of binding it together, creating a way to, um, you know, to, to gel some of the extra liquid that might be keeping that veggie burger more on the crumbly side versus that together side. Uh, one more thing is after you make your mix, it's sometimes helpful to let that sit and stand, you know, while refrigerated, just to let those ingredients fully incorporate. And if there is some excess moisture to let that possibly absorb into those, those, that, that brown rice that you're already using, but, you know, it sounds like you might need just a little bit of an extra binder in there as well. Tina says, uh, what is the best way to roast vegetables without oil and still get them caramelized? So, um, this no oil roasting technique is a technique that I use all the time. Um, I typically have, you know, good success with it. If I just kind of focus on the basics of roasting, number one, making sure you have a nice hot oven to work with. I typically will do no oil roasting in that 400 to 425 range. If you have the option for convection in your oven, meaning that you have a fan quickly circulating air that helps with evenness. It helps with facilitating browning. It helps to wick moisture away from the surface of that vegetable to really encourage that browning process, even without oil. Um, coating your vegetables in some flavorful uh, mixture can also help. So things I might use if I'm coating vegetables and I want to create some extra flavor, opportunity for color. I might use a splash of uh, vinegar with some splash of some stock or some reduced fruit juice. That works really, really well. Um, in the past, I've even made reductions of different things where you could have some, you know, concentrated vegetable stock and just a small amount of something with some sugar in it, like a juice or a vinegar can also really help. And you're just going to very, very lightly coat your vegetables. So say you're doing a, a no oil uh, carrot roasting, you could literally take like a tablespoon or two of this flavorful liquid, again, broth or some reduced uh, vinegar or some apple juice or anything really that's going to complement the flavors um, and coat, you know, coat the vegetables with that just enough to cover them. You're not looking to get them overly wet because again, too much moisture will inhibit your browning and your crisping in the roasting pan, but enough to kind of glaze them a little bit to encourage that Maillard effect, that ability to have some browning on the exterior. So temperature, whatever you're using to coat that vegetable can also be helpful. Making sure that you've got pretty small cuts. I find that again, 
like I mentioned in a previous response, you don't want to have giant, you know, two inch pieces of vegetable. Those are just going to cook too slowly in that hot oven to create a nice effect. You want to have smaller pieces that are going to cook quickly, that are well spaced, they have plenty of air circulation. Um, in this scenario, you know, at that kind of 400, 425, or even hotter uh, with a convection, you're essentially kind of modifying your oven into a kind of a large air fryer. Really, an air fryer is very, very similar, closed space, a lot of circulation of air, high temperature sort of a situation. So that should work for you. Um, the biggest things we see is not enough temperature, cuts are too large, and there's too much crowding of the vegetables, meaning they're not really given a chance to cook, you know, on the exterior or on the bottom where it's actually touching the pan. Um, just a few things to kind of uh, look out for. Uh, Evelyn has a question about um, using her knife sharpener. Uh, I use a knife sharpener because I'm intimidated by the advanced whetstone method. I cook most days at lots of prep work. How often can I use my knife sharpener and how many passes front and back should I use? I'm disappointed with my results. Um, well, gosh, I mean, number one, congratulations for even being kind of aware to your knife sharpening status, I would say, you know, by and large, even for a person who's cooking a lot, you shouldn't really need to put your knife on a sharpener, whether it's a whetstone or a electric type sharpener, all that often. Um, you really want to sharpen well, and then you want to maintain that edge by honing it with a steel. Um, and we go into detail around the difference between sharpening which is actually kind of the removal of the metal to make that edge a certain shape um, versus honing, which is essentially just fine tuning, you know, that top burr at the very, very point to make sure that it's lining up evenly and not bent over or a little bit twisted or kind of sideways, which could essentially give the appearance that your knife is very dull, um, but really just needs to almost be adjusted versus resharpened. I would say, you know, it shouldn't take that many passes once your knife is sharp. It might take 15 or 20 passes um, if you kind of go up from uh, a coarse grit, maybe 400 or 600 grit, all the way up to a medium, maybe a thousand, and then a finer finishing, you know, 2000, 4000 plus might be in that realm. Um, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be using your sharpener on a daily basis. That seems like too much. Uh, you're going to be grinding down your knife in that sort of a situation. But certainly if you're using your sharpener, you know, weekly or a few times a month, that really should be sufficient. Um, if your knives are otherwise dulling quickly, you might ask, you know, where are you storing those knives? Are they being washed by hand or in a dishwasher? Um, those other factors handling wise might impact uh how long those knives keep an edge. But it sounds like you just need to get a good a good edge to start with. And you might be struggling because you might not have a great edge. And a lot of the work you're doing is almost just more superficial, more topical versus actually creating that better sharp knife foundation. Um, you know, when all else fails, um, you might just also for those top two or three knives that you use all the time, you might also just, um, you know, bring it to a professional knife sharpener, typically for $10 or $15. Um, they can put a really good edge on that knife. You'll get it back. It'll be like brand new. And it might be easier for you to maintain after you've got that professional edge. Again, not a requirement, but something just to maybe think about um, if you've been unhappy with your uh, knife sharpening thus far. Next question coming in is from Harriet. Uh, Hi, Chef Ken. How long can I freeze seitan sausages? Also, I recently purchased a huge jackfruit and placed in bags in a freezer. I, I, I make smoothies due to its sweetness. Do you have any recommendations of how to prepare sweet jackfruit in a meal? Um, so to answer your first question, when it comes to something like a seitan sausage, I think about six months is probably the ideal time. You know, freezers can, 
you know, preserve food for longer than that six month period. But I find that many foods, the quality begins to suffer after a period of time. So I would say as a general rule, six months is about that time. Again, assuming that all other parts of the storage are also done well, where it's really, you know, tightly wrapped and double wrapped and this sort of thing. It's not just, you know, in a loose bag or just, you know, in a single layer of plastic wrap or something like that. You just want to make sure it's being handled really, really well. So I would say, um, you know, about six months in terms of the seitan. When it comes to jackfruit, you know, you're absolutely right. If your jackfruit is already ripe, it's going to really work best in these sweet applications, more dessert applications. Um, a lot of jackfruit recipes that you see for plant-based cooking explicitly, you know, specifically uses green, what they call green or underripe or unripe jackfruit, because that's going to have uh, number one, sort of that desired texture, but number two, it's not going to have that sweetness. It's going to be a much more neutral flavor, um, more of a palette that you could use and really build flavors with. So just maybe something to consider when it comes to the jackfruit. There's uh, kind of two market forms, that sweet and that green. And the green is the one that you typically see more in like a jackfruit pulled pork or as a stuffing or a filling for something where you might be able to apply uh, a more savory flavor set to that. Uh, next question coming from Roy D. Uh, when I cube red potatoes and saute them in the pan, they stick to the bottom. Adding water just makes them soggy. Is air frying in the oven the only option? Uh, so Roy, I'm a big fan of the air frying method. I think for a lot of people, especially people who want that satisfaction of a crispy vegetable, something that has that texture and that crunch and also the flavor that comes with the browning process. Um, air fryer makes a lot of sense. Uh, going back to what I said previously about, you know, cooking without the need for additional salt or oil or sugar in a convection oven is that you can actually mimic on a larger scale, a lot of what happens in an air fryer, just on a sheet pan in a convection oven, if you're using the right temperature. So if I'm making no oil, um, you know, country style potatoes or hash browns or some red potatoes that I cube really small. And my goal is to essentially mimic what it would have been like to fry them up in a frying pan. Um, I'll oftentimes just do them on a sheet pan. So my method for that is I'll cut my potatoes, you know, pretty small, kind of maybe a quarter inch or something like that in cubes. Um, I might give them a, a coating like I referred to earlier where maybe a little bit of stock or something else just to kind of give them something ex on the exterior to help with flavor and also browning. Again, not too much liquid because that's going to defeat your goal of having crispiness. Um, and then a nice hot oven, 425 or even hotter, good spacing, good airflow, um, that's going to be your best bet in terms of finding that balance where you get non-stick because the parchment is not going to let anything stick. You're getting both conduction from where that one potato piece is on the bottom of the pan, but also all the convection currents surrounding it. That's going to be heating it, creating that browning phenomenon. Um, just a, another note, when you're cooking with that method, um, Preheating your oven for a good 15 minutes is going to be key to really making sure that your oven temperature is nice and hot and also trying your best not to uh, peek into the oven and open it up and lose that, you know, 20, 30, 50 degrees of temperature that your oven will then have to recharge. Your oven really wants to be super nice and hot and don't be, you know, opening it or peeking inside because that's going to only limit or diminish the ability for that browning action to happen or happen more quickly. Um, so hopefully that that works well. Uh, Evelyn just has a quick follow up. Thanks, Chef. I hand wash and keep my knives on a horizontal magnetic strip. So that's a great way to store knives. It sounds like maybe those knives just need to be sharpened really well and then maintained as sharp. 
because uh, could be that those are getting that sharp to start with. Um, next question, I have a chocolate and cheese craving and struggling with overeating and binging. Um, what should I eat more of to control this? Um, you know, I would say, you know, if you're having some questions around your eating patterns and struggling with some questions around overeating, you know, certainly speaking to your healthcare professional would be a good starting point um, just to make sure that you're not also experiencing other kinds of stress or anxiety or other things that might manifest itself outside of just that, um, that food component. Um, but I think certainly, you know, during the holiday time in particular, we're surrounded by a lot of food. It's tempting. I get it. I fall prey to that as well. Um, so it becomes more of a, you know, what do you put in your environment so that when you do have that craving and you're really wanting something crispy or salty or sweet or chewy, that you have some options at least that might be good fallbacks for you. Um, for me, uh, you know, instead of snacking on more processed foods or like chips or those sorts of things, I will oftentimes just slice some fruit, slice some vegetables. I go back to having nuts and seeds, which again, not low calorie, but from a satisfaction point of view, you get a lot of satiation, a lot of satisfaction um, from eating a small amount of those. You can't really just eat them and eat them and eat them. You kind of get full, the action of a lot of chewing, all those things create that sense of being satisfied from your food. So I find those things really help. Um, you know, that really that kind of mindfulness of chewing and swallowing and having an awareness versus just like shoveling food in, I think is one of those key things. And things like vegetables and fruits and nuts and seeds just simply don't go down as quickly or as easily as some of those more uh, processed type snacks. Uh, so hopefully that helps you there, Toki. Um, hi, Chef. Would you be able to suggest a replacement for yogurt in any recipe? Um, yeah, it almost depends on what function that yogurt is holding in that recipe. Uh, if it's meant to, you know, kind of add a tanginess or that kind of brightness or the acidity, you could use... Um, you know, just something acid potentially. Uh, you can also use like, if you didn't want to have something that was, uh, you know, creamy, you could just use citrus or that sort of a thing. If you did want the creaminess of yogurt and the richness of yogurt, but didn't want the dairy of yogurt, certainly there are lots of non-dairy yogurt alternatives, some made with things like cashews, some made with things like coconut. Um, those can also be cultured and create some of that acidity and some of that vibrancy, that brightness of flavor. So um, that could be a, a piece of it. Um, but really kind of, like I said earlier, just depends on what function you're trying to fulfill with that yogurt in a recipe. I love making, um, you know, cashew creams and things like that where I can ferment them and let them culture and create that tartness, brightness, acidity, that becomes a great stir-in or a topping on a bowl. So if you've got some brown rice and some cooked vegetables and, you know, some chickpea stew and you want to give it a big dollop of yogurt in lieu of sour cream, um, certainly you can make your own uh, plant-based version of that that, like I said, is cultured and has the sourness and adds creamy plus sour type of a flavor. Another question here. I follow the 50-50 plate method. I'm confused about the starch side of the plate. Do I need to pick one tuber and a starchy vegetable plus a grain and a legume for every meal or just pick uh, one type of starch? Um, so I would say, you know, when you think about um, a potato or a sweet potato, you know, those are tubers. They're also starchy vegetables. I wouldn't go if you're trying to have like this 50-50 plate mix. I wouldn't go too high on the starch. I would say that your better bet is to probably have, um, you know, the starchy vegetable, a grain, 
green vegetables, certainly just any other vegetables that are not starchy style vegetables, leafy greens in particular, um, cruciferous vegetables, these sorts of things would be really, really good to add. Um, I would, you know, probably also check with your healthcare professional. So if you're eating a certain way for a certain type of uh, dietary or medical outcome, you know, that's something to also very much consider in your choices. You want to make sure, you know, no matter what, that you're eating a wide variety of foods um, throughout the day, throughout the week, and not just the same two, three, four things on your plate. That's going to help you, number one, just feeling more satisfied from your food, but also will help ensure that you're getting the variety of, of you know, macro and micronutrients that you need. Um, but certainly, um, you know, this approach, you know, tends to work well for people who are just trying to build a plate knowing that they have kind of a formula, let's call it, that they can follow where they know that they have to have a certain part of their plate filled up with whole grains and with you know, leafy greens or other vegetables and then starchy, uh, starchy vegetables. Uh, next question coming in here. Hi, Chef. I have a carbon steel flat bottom wok. I use it on a home gas stove. I have read that it's important to get the wok as hot as possible. So I turn the gas up. However, the oil immediately smokes. Can it be too hot? Um, yeah, I mean, this is sort of the, one of the perils and pitfalls of high temperature cooking, like in a wok, um, is that to kind of achieve that cooking method, you want to get your pan very, very hot. It definitely puts you at risk for having the oil that you put in, avocado oil, uh, you indicated, um, even even an oil like that, which has a fairly high smoke point of it, you know, immediately getting very, very hot and maybe not hitting a flash point, but certainly if you're seeing smoke hitting a smoke point. Um, so, you know, not great in terms of the integrity of the oil, the quality of that oil is going to suffer if it's heated to that point immediately in particular. I would just say if you're trying to balance the reality of like high heat cooking and wok cooking where you get you know, that flavor of the wok, um, uh, you know, you just might want to turn down that temperature a little bit. You can also really limit the amount of oil that you're using, meaning you're also limiting the amount of degraded oil that you're eating. Um, you know, those are just be some suggestions, but it's a tough thing to kind of have to navigate if you're both looking for the culinary and sort of technique-based approach to stir-frying, but also have a concern for the breakdown of the oil and the smoking of the oil and those sorts of things. Um, this is just one area where you're just trying to balance like what is the better thing. If, uh, if it's going to be the thing that helps you eat more vegetables, then I think by all means do it, but limit the time and temperature of that oil being that hot. Um, otherwise, you know, choosing just a slightly less heat intensive approach, um, something where you're not eclipsing that 450 degree mark in the case of avocado oil might just be the better option for you, Mitch. Anne says, uh, what is the best type of cutting board? Um, you know, really in kitchens, there are, you know, multiple styles of cutting boards that are good to use. I personally am a fan of um, using wood cutting boards that I can wash and manage and maintain and clean on my own. If it's left to others or in a food service setting, wood might not be the best solution for people because it does require a certain amount of basic care, nothing too extreme, but basic care just to make sure that they're washed well and dried well. Otherwise, I would say poly you know, cutting boards, those plastic or composite type cutting boards are going to be your best bet. They're inexpensive. I have multiple of them at home. You want to make sure that, you know, they're just washed well and also dried well because they can also harbor bacteria and stuff. But the good thing is that, you know, after a certain point, you can either sand them down and just kind of make them perfectly flat again. Over time, they'll create little bit of a bow or kind of a divot in the middle where you're using a lot 
or just you know for the fifteen dollars, just buy a new a new cutting board. Um, again, something that should last years before having to do that, but something that might make sense for you. Um, I'm a big fan of having multiple cutting boards to use. I can't tell you how many times I've worked with students who are trying to do work on a little tiny cutting board and then they have to stop what they're doing and wash their cutting board just to move on and do something else. You should really have, I would say at a minimum two, maybe three cutting boards that you can use. And that way you don't have to stop what you're doing and wash a cutting board every time you want to move from a different task to a different task. Uh, Kathy has a question. Can you talk a little more about the path to becoming certified as a chef through Ruby? Ruby gives credits for the FOK class, but other classes give a certificate. Um, yeah, so good question, Kathy. You know, many, many courses within the Ruby portfolio qualify for continuing education hours, CEHs, through the American Culinary Federation Education Foundation. This is the body uh, within the ACF that allows for certifications such as certified culinarian or certified sous chef or certified executive chef. Um, many, like I said, many Ruby courses qualify for some number of hours, including forks over knives, but our longer programs, like our plant-based professional program, um, our cook's professional program, um, you know, actually give you enough hours to provide most, if not all, of the related instruction required for the ACF for certification. So in those examples, there might be some additional courses that you have to take that are ACF approved through them, uh, in particular, their sanitation, their nutrition, and their uh, food service supervision course. Those are the three that they usually tack on on top. And of course, there's a certification exam that you have to pay for and have uh, administered separately through the ACF that would be part of that certification. But if that's something that you're you're pursuing and you want to talk to someone in more depth about, uh, we have people on our team who are expert. So if you want to send us an email uh, into the support channel, um, you know, kind of with your detail, your specific, let us know kind of what your professional goals are and your timeline then we can probably better address that question for you. But um, in short, uh, lots and lots of programs qualify. It just becomes a matter of how many hours uh, and then what else do you also need to do with the ACF to qualify uh, for the certification. Uh, question from Mary, do you press tofu uh, before you freeze it or freeze and press after? Um, you know, when I freeze tofu, I almost always do it with the goal of using it in certain applications where I want that, you know, then thawed tofu just to have a little bit of that shift in texture that comes from the freezing. In particular, the one application is where we see like a tofu scramble where you want to break up that tofu and the freezing actually just kind of shifts the texture of that tofu a bit um, and probably less important in those scenarios to do a pressing before you freeze. But if I were to freeze it, um, I'd be thinking about using it in those applications. I haven't, I don't think really ever pressed it and then froze it and then thawed it and, you know, done a test to see how that difference, you know, what the difference is between that product and the product that was just, you know, taken out of the package um, and frozen and then thawed and made into a scramble or those sorts of things. But I'd probably just treat it as an experiment and see what what was going to work. I, I don't see any harm in pressing it beforehand. I don't know that I'd want to press after. It seems like, um, you know, maybe during the thawing process, it can also be pressed. But it seems like at that point, it might just be best to... Um, you know, break it apart and do that, that scramble uh, method. Uh, next question here. Many recipes fall, call for cardamom, but they don't specify green or black. I believe the results are quite different. 
any insight on what you should choose should be appreciated. Um, you know, typically I've used uh, green cardamom, but the interior part of the cardamom, which really has the most bang for your buck, kind of the cardamom seeds, um, that typically is what they're calling for within a recipe. Um, whole cardamom, you can kind of crack and use for infusions and those sorts of things. But when I kind of think about what's the most bang for my buck when it comes to cardamom, I'm looking for those interior dark brown or black cardamom seeds that can be done, uh, you know, uh, added and blended in uh, as part of an overall spice mix. Uh, a little goes a long way, so you don't want to over, you know, kind of over season with cardamom. It's um, one of those spices that has a pretty pronounced flavor, a pretty specific flavor, and tends to work well with others. It plays well with other spices, depending on if you're going towards um, more of a savory application where you might add, uh, you know, cumin, coriander, chilies, uh, fenugreek, other sorts of things, or in, in the case of, of, of cardamom being more kind of a warm, sweet spice with cookies or pastries or puddings and things where you might pair it with like nutmeg or mace or clove or cinnamon and some of those other sorts of things. Um, works about, you know, works well in both applications. Next question from Suzanne, when purchasing a mandolin, uh, stainless steel better than plastic? Thanks for your input. Um, so I, I've used both styles of mandolins. I have to say that, you know, the, the big stainless steel, you know, mandolin works well. They're quite heavy. They're durable. But I would say for most people, um, you know, there's uh, a Japanese brand mandolin that has a plastic body, very high quality blades that you can take out and also very easy to adjust the height. Um, you know, using a guard, using a glove, that might be for most people the most cost cost effective and best option. I would say since I own both styles of mandolin, I think maybe earlier in my career, I was using more of the stainless steel, um, but more and more just out of convenience or ease of use, my uh, plastic Japanese mandolin is fantastic. I use it all the time. It's something I use weekly for shaved salads, for garnishes, um, for, you know, slicing up that cucumber super fast and having it consistent for a pickle, those sorts of things. Uh, next question. Now that you've mentioned reductions, can I use coconut sugar to make a fruit reduction? Absolutely. Um, if you're making like a a glazed fruit or a fruit syrup or you're reducing fruit, um, I, I would say coconut sugar should work really, really well. It's not going to become uh, completely dissolved like, uh, you know, um, regular granulated sugar might, um, meaning part of those sugars might dissolve, but you also might have a little bit of residual texture from the coconut itself in some cases, but otherwise should work just fine. Um, I think it's a really, really smart idea. And uh, one more question here um, from Jamie. Chef, can you help demystify the different non-dairy milk alternatives? I'm struggling to figure out which plant-based version provides the best overall nutrition. Do you recommend cooking with one in particular, depending on the type of cooking, like baking, um, this is a good question. I would say, you know, many of these alternatives are going to provide just various degrees of nutritional content, also various degrees of kind of mouthfeel or the feeling of richness in your mouth, um, you know, ranging from something like a rice milk being very thin, little to no protein, no fat. Um, you know, pleasant flavor to something like soy milk that has a lot of fat relatively, a lot of protein relatively, um, will coagulate or thicken in some cases, but also has that more intense flavor. Um, for me, you know, I like using a variety of different uh, nut and seed-based milks or plant-based milks. 
Um, for many, many years, I was making my own oat milk that has become very, very popular plant-based milk alternative just in the last year or two. Um, you know, for a while it was other alternatives. It was, you know, soy or cashew milk or other sorts of things. I think the oat milk has definitely been a bit of a game changer for people. It's a more forgiving ingredient. It doesn't come with um, anything negative that someone might have if they don't want to have soy or anything negative around um, a nut or seed base option, which could have higher fat and also you know, potential allergens. Um, but, you know, for myself, I'd say at the house here, we're either making um, oat milk or buying oat milk probably most of the time. That's what my what my wife likes in her coffee, for instance, compared to other sorts of plant-based milks. Um, so we've, you know, been pretty satisfied with that. Other things like hemp milk, um, you know, can have some bitterness or some different flavors. So if that's something that you like, you might just kind of think about what the right application for that product might be over others. Um, but with so many options on the market now, it really comes down to kind of your personal preference. Um, if you are looking for something for nutrition, it becomes a little bit more challenging because then you're really in the realm of what are those plant-based milks that are going to have protein and there's just not as many that kind of stack up to uh, a cow-based milk or you know, animal-based milk in that area. Soy being kind of the primary one that might have uh, a chance at that protein, um, you know, that kind of macronutrient profile with protein and fat. Um, otherwise, it's really just sort of something resembling milk that might not have the mouthfeel or even some of those functional uh, applications within how it works with food. Uh, so hope that helps you, Jamie. Um, I think it just requires maybe a little bit of experimentation on your part. And that looks like all the questions for today. Really, really amazing questions. So nice to be able to hear from all of you and kind of see what's on your mind in terms of food and cooking. Uh, if I wasn't able to get to a question, by all means, please let us know. We're always happy to help. And uh, we look forward to seeing you in the future and happy cooking. Take care.